You know what? I left my phone, which is my timer, right there on the front pew. Thanks, buddy. Well, for all its talk of the necessity of faith and our need for endurance, we might think that Hebrews is a letter uh, written to push Christians into action, right? To mobilize us to get busy doing the work of the Lord. If, if that's what we took from Hebrews, it would mean we weren't listening. We weren't listening. We often assume when we read scripture that the point of it, the whole point of it is to get us to do something or to get us to stop doing something that we are doing. Beloved, the point of the word of God is that you would believe in his son. And and given the content of the book of John as a whole and its relation to Genesis and the rest of Scripture, the apostle implies that this is the goal of all Scripture. When he writes at the end of his gospel, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And the first few chapters of Hebrews have lifted up Jesus for us, the one true Son of God reigning at the Father's right hand who became one of us so that he could be our high priest and create one new family of God. He gave up his life for us, suffered for us, rose for us, reigns for us, and now the Father, through Jesus from heaven, is calling that family home. Jesus, as all of that, is given in Hebrews as the solution to the problem in the audience this author was writing to. Unbelieving, hardening hearts that are drifting and about to fall away. Last week, Hebrews 3 verses 12 and 13 revealed the antidote that God has given to his people to fight the poison of unbelief, exhorting one another every day, every day that it is called today, to consider Jesus in the message of great salvation so that we don't become hardened by the deceitfulness of our own sin. Namely, our own flesh's attempt to make us believe God will accept us or reject us based on our works. God gave Christians the church for that. He gave us one another for that, to make sure that the anchor that holds down our souls is Jesus The internal purpose of the community of faith is to keep one another from falling away. And we got a picture of the specific kind of danger the letter of Hebrews warns us against in Israel's wandering in the wilderness. God had a promised land for them, but they failed to enter it because of unbelief. Jesus has appeared before God as one of us on our behalf so that we might rest from our works and find mercy and grace to help when we are in need. That's where we pick up chapter 4 as the Holy Spirit continues here to apply Psalm 95 to his audience, to us. If you're able then, would you stand with me as we read? We'll read what is really the heartbeat of this text in verses 11 through 16, but then we'll walk through the chapter together. He says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. There are different kinds of disobedience, right? 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That is terrifying if there's no Christ. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you've spoken once and for all the clear and final word through him and through no other thing or person. And so, Father, I pray that he is the one we would hear this morning. So, Lord, do a supernatural act of grace in these coming moments and enable us to hear the word of God and receive it with meekness and humility in our souls. Every one of us, Father, we pray, please help me preach. Please, Father, make my confidence be the text and your son who is in it and nothing else. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, everyone. So let's go back to the beginning of this chapter. The wilderness generation after the Exodus was unable to enter the promised land of Canaan for one primary reason in chapter 3, verse 19, their unbelief. That's what was being uh, expressed in their constant complaining and murmuring and griping was unbelief. That's what those things are a symptom of, unbelief. We wouldn't think that's the root of disobedience, but it's always the root of disobedience. That's why he starts 4-1 the way that he does. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The ESV is very clunky here. Uh, verse 3 is basically saying they did not believe it when they heard it. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So the promise of entering his rest still stands in verse 1. In other words, these struggling believers have not been disqualified from entering God's rest just because they're drifting. It's still there. And since it is, the author says, let us fear, or it will seem like we haven't reached it. Not fear for the sake of being afraid, but the kind of fear that would motivate a mountain climber to have all the equipment, make sure they have all the proper equipment and everything's been checked. And it's another version of take care that we read back in chapter 3, verse 12, because in verse 2, chapter 4, good news, gospel, came to us just as to them. Not the gospel came to them, but good news came to them. But the message they heard, their promise that God would provide a rest for them, did not benefit them because they didn't believe it when they heard it. 
And so the author continues in Hebrews to press the necessity we all have, even if we're in the camp, that we all have to keep listening to and keep believing the message of great salvation in Jesus Christ that he started all the way back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Because in verse 3 here, only those who believe that message enter this rest. Okay, there's notice that there's no such thing as believing and not entering the rest. So the problem with those who never entered the rest was that they never truly believed what they had heard. This is the promise of true rest here in Hebrews 4, the eternal rest. And we find here that's actually been available for all who put their trust in God since he rested from his creative work all the way back on the seventh day. When this rest was promised to Israel in the wilderness, the place to which it was connected was Canaan. That rest had a physical place attached to it, yes, but more than a place, it was foreshadowing the promise of God's covenant presence and his love and his salvation. Throughout the book of Hebrews, it will become clear that the place to which God's true rest is connected is not an earthly city. It is not an earthly homeland. It is what the author calls a city that has foundations, a heavenly homeland, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a city that is yet to come all through Hebrews 11 and 13. God has always promised this final rest to those who believe in him alone for salvation. In verse 3, God had spoken in Psalm 95 of not entering his rest as though it was Maybe you could be implied from that that it wasn't there yet or it was solely in the future. Even though he had been resting since he finished working at the foundation of the world. And he reiterates that in verses 4 to 5 here by citing that exact text where God said that from Genesis 2-2. Now that little phrase in the middle of verse 3, as he has said, connects, this is very important, connects belief in the finished work of Christ for salvation, the gospel, at the beginning of the verse, to what God did when he rested from creating the world. See, they're connected here. God speaks of the seventh day of creation as resting from his work. Beloved, to believe Jesus in the message of great salvation is to rest from our works. That's what the author is explaining to believe the gospel means we believe that we no longer need to work to earn God's approval because now we rest. And it seems like, remember verse one, it seems like we fail to enter rest when we're still working to earn it. It seems like we don't have rest when we would try to earn God's approval as they were thinking of doing by obeying the law. And we know, what do we know from Galatians? That a desire to go back under the law is simply the desire of our flesh to make ourselves right with God by our own works. But working is not resting. They're not the same thing. God ceased from his works in order to rest. We do the same when we believe. We believe Jesus has done it all and that it's finished. Verse 6. Since therefore... It remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, because people keep not believing it. 
Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This day, Sunday, September 15th, this day. For if Joshua had given them rest, which means he didn't. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whomever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Because God's true and final rest still remains as it has since the beginning of time for those who want to enter it by simply believing in him. There's still another relevant today. And it's this day. Now, that same rest is still available today for those who will believe his voice in Jesus. Remember chapter 1, verse 2. Even though there were those before who heard good news and didn't enter what it promised because they didn't believe, that doesn't nullify rest. Right? That doesn't cancel out the promised rest for those that do believe. It's still there for those who believe the message of great salvation. But as we find here, neither does the fact that a whole generation in Israel did enter the promised land of Canaan under Joshua, neither does that cancel out the promise of true rest. The true rest, the final rest, still remains for all who believe. It's still there. He says in verse 8 that if what Joshua had given the Israelites when he took them into Canaan was the true rest of God, God would never have talked about still entering it through David in Psalm 95 hundreds of years later. Crossing over into Canaan was not the final rest. It is not the fullness of what God was promising when he rested and when he promised rest to sinful people who believe in him. No, beloved, even though Joshua led them into Canaan, there still remains in verse 9 the Sabbath rest, the true and better Sabbath rest in Christ for the people of God. Because in verse 10, whoever has entered God's rest, that is, ceased from his works by believing in Jesus has also rested from his works as God did from his back in verses 3 and 4. So the author writes in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So, whatever sort of disobedience it was that caused them to fall at the end of the verse is where the focus of our striving should be at the beginning of the verse. And the sort of disobedience that caused them to fall is following all the way from chapter 3 verse 19 is what? What sort of disobedience was it? It was unbelief. And beloved, this verse follows immediately from the fact that we who have believed enter that rest. 
Look at verse 10 again. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. We have rested from our works by believing in Jesus in the same way that God rested from his creating work on the seventh day. So Christian striving might not be what we think it is. Christian striving is a striving to actually rest. Right? It is to keep Believing. It is not to keep working. We know that from verse 10. It is to keep believing, not to keep working to earn his approval. Because if you keep striving through work to enter that rest, it doesn't look like you're resting. It seems like you failed to reach it. Verse 1. Because it's reached only by believing with faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved, the hardest Work of the Christian life, no qualification, is to look like you're at rest. To look like the yoke you're under is easy and the burden you're carrying is light. That's how we reflect that we know Christ. Do you see that here? When it doesn't look like we're trying to earn something, Does your Christian life look like you are at rest? Or does it look like the issue is still in doubt? When the good works that flow out of us flow out of us because the Spirit of God lives within us, producing His love, producing His joy, which we have because by grace we abide in Him through faith, not by works. Beloved, if we want to glorify God, if we want to honor Him with the life we live We must cease from works as the means of doing so and rest. Beloved, in the same way that God created plants already yielding seed, all the way back in the beginning, the spirit within you yields the fruit which is glorifying to God when the words of the gospel continue to fall on our souls like the water that rains on the earth. Plants don't produce because they work. Plants produce because God's word created them to produce whenever the water falls on them. Only believe. Let the water of his word fall on you. It's God's design for you and I to grow and produce. It does not come about by working. It does not come about by effort. It comes by hearing with faith the word of God spoken once and for all in Christ in the message of great salvation. When you read through these chapters, the call is not to get to work. The call is to believe and rest. This is the foundational work of the Christian life, to believe the one whom he has sent. Everything else is a fruit of that. It's a fruit of the spirit who lives in you, or it's the fruit of the flesh. So stop trying so hard to work. Just rest. Just believe. Because if we don't, we'll fall. That's what Hebrews is telling us, but we we don't want to listen because it's counterintuitive. We all want skin in the game. We all want to be able to control on some level 
this Christian life we've accepted. We, we want to be able to call some of the shots, earn some of it, right? The harder you try to earn God's approval, the more likely it is you will learn your faith. You'll lose your faith. He's too holy for his approval to be gained by works. He's not some tribal deity. He's too holy for that. And beloved, it doesn't matter if that sounds counterintuitive. Listen, of course, belief only sounds counterintuitive. Stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remember chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. It is a daily need to consider Jesus in the message of great salvation. Because every second of every day, every strand of your DNA you got from Adam is trying to make you doubt that Jesus is enough. Our flesh works overtime so that we won't believe the word of God is proclaimed once and for all in Christ. The problem with not believing the word of God is in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Where are you going to go to get around the word? How are you going to fool God? Regardless of when it is today, this is the word of God all the time. God knows whether or not we actually believe. God knows why we do the works we do. He knows whether our heart is resting fully on and trusting completely in his son. The word of God lays us open as we hear it, as we read it. And again, I know I've mentioned this before. You don't use swords to do surgery. Swords kill people. Right? God lays us open and bare through the word of the gospel in his son Jesus Christ. What is the word in Hebrews? It's the word spoken once and for all by his son. It is his son. There's no way around this. We are being called today by verse 11 to strive to enter that rest that you enter by believing only and not by working. It's the rest you enter by resting. There's no way into his rest then for those who refuse to rest now. Verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Beloved, that means verse true, verse 12 is true for every person on the earth. Right? Remember verse 10 applies to whoever has entered God's rest by believing. Through his spoken, through his words spoken by Christ in the book of Hebrews, in these very verses, God is calling in Christ all humanity to cease from working by believing the message of great salvation in Jesus Christ. Since then, right, if all this is true, if this is what the word of God does, if there's nothing I can hide from him, right? If there's no way I can get around the truth of God's word, if there's no way I can cover up the fact that I'm actually working to earn it and all my confidence and hope are, are based in 
purely on what I do or don't do. If the word of God is going to lay me open like a sword and reveal that I don't fully trust Jesus Christ for my salvation. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the message of the scripture to you. Beloved, since we have a high priest who stands before this holy, perfect God, On behalf of human beings, since we have that, let us hold fast our confession. That simple, puny belief that we had that Jesus is enough, since Jesus is standing for us before God, let us hold fast to that simple, puny belief. Since we have one standing before this God who has been weighed and measured by this piercing word and found to be lacking nothing, Let us hold fast our simple belief in him. He will not fail us. You see what the author does when he wants you to strive? Where does he take our eyes? Straight to heaven, straight to Christ. You see that? It's beautiful. When Jesus ascended back to the Father, God sat him down at his right hand to reign forever because he was fully obedient, fully righteous, fully successful, and fully sufficient to be our Savior and King. And so the confidence of our confession before God rests fully on the quality of our Lord Jesus Christ for us. Jesus is why we can rest from our works. We can rest in confidence and in hope because he is not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. What a thought from God. That means he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus, the son of God, reigning at the father's right hand, is sympathizing with us because of our weaknesses. He's not holding them over our head. Did you know that? Did you know that that's his posture towards you as you struggle? Sympathy? How great of a savior is he? Our high priest knows the temptation to doubt. He knows the temptation to stop believing that God is good. He knows the temptation to stop believing that God cares for him. And it almost got him. It almost got him. But it didn't. He is not a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. There is not one temptation you and I have felt that he hasn't resisted. But beloved, where we fail when tempted, Jesus succeeded every time. That is why when he passed through the heavens, as he was being ascent, as he's raising back up from the earth, 
That's why he wasn't kicked back out. Because every time we fail, we go to our high priest who never did. Right? He's still there. Where you and I doubt, he is faithful. Where you and I lose our tempers, he remains steadfast. Where we lust, Jesus remains pure. Where we love the world and the things in the world, his eyes remain fixed on his father. When we get angry, he trusts him. Where we indulge the flesh, he resisted. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beloved, where does the struggling believer go in his time of need? Because if you go back in on yourself, it's going to kill you. If you believe when you fail that the answer for correcting it is to be found in you and your effort and your work and your discipline, you will fall again. Where does the struggling believer go in his time of need? Where does the doubting believer go in her time of need? Where does the weary believer go in his time of need? Where does the struggling, troubled believer go in her time of need? Where do the guilty go? Where do the worn out go? We draw near to the throne of grace. We don't run from it. And we draw near with confidence. Did you know you would be doing Jesus a disservice if you came doubting that he would forgive you when you ask? You realize that? We think it's more pious. Like if you ever sinned and thought, I can't repent right now. I gotta feel, I gotta feel more guilt here. I mean, I, I gotta feel, I mean, sin B527 demands according to the manual of appropriate guilt for sins committed, demands a lot more guilt than I'm feeling right now. I can't go to Jesus until what? Until I've made myself clean enough to go to him so that he'll accept me. It's like we've never even read the gospel. Right? We, 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 if, if, if you took a quiz, everybody would pass. How do you get saved? By grace through faith apart from works. Everybody passes that on paper. Hardly any of us pass it when we sin. Beloved, the issue is what saves people. And if we muddy the water, do you know what we don't have as a result of it? Confidence. Jesus bought that confidence. Jesus earned that confidence and gave it to me. He's up there saying, I'm standing before the God whose word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I'm standing there for you. So come on. Right? It, it, is, it is the deepest and most grievous of unbeliefs to say he will not take me. We don't go wondering whether or not God will be merciful. We don't go doubting whether or not he will extend grace yet again. We go confident. Not because we have done well enough to gain an audience with him. We didn't pass through the heavens. Jesus did. We don't go with confidence because... We've been sure to dot all the I's and cross all the T's. We don't go with confidence because we actually had a pretty good week. 
We don't go with confidence because we've done rather well lately. The confidence of the believer is never found in the believer. We are never the reason. We are never the reason. We are never the reason that we have access to the throne of grace. We are never the reason God will accept us or listen to us or forgive us. The only confidence the believer has that is well-founded is that which is placed in Christ alone, our high priest. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he knows why we have them. He knows how hard it is to resist. He knows how hard it is to remain faithful because he actually did it. And he credited that perfect obedience to God, to my account, to the extent that before God it's as though I had obeyed like he did. That's the basis of my confidence. God's throne is a throne of grace for his people. It's a throne of grace for those who believe. When we go there, we will never find wrath. We will never find condemnation. We will never feel a cold shoulder. We will never be turned away. We will find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Help me do what? Keep believing. Because your sin is going to make you think you should throw in the towel. Your righteousness is going to make you think you should throw in the towel. Or it's going to turn you into a deplorable Pharisee whose confidence is in his works And you won't stand before him either. God will help his people rest. That's what the text is telling us. God will help his people stay faithful. God will help his people keep believing. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 that we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What is God's means of guarding us? Keeping us believing through the word of the gospel in Jesus Christ. God will not fail his people because our high priest is Jesus. The wilderness generation didn't have that. We do, beloved. The heavens have been breached from this side by a human being who stands for us before almighty God the Father forever. The greatest temptation we will face the greatest temptation we will face is to not believe the gospel. It's to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus in it for us. To believe that we really have and will enter his rest. To believe that we may rest from our works. Think about what you might be feeling right now. If the idea of resting from your works scares you that you might not get saved, what are you trusting in? Why is this a threat to us? Because we believe in salvation by works when the rubber meets the road. This is not a threat to you. God didn't install a design of salvation that prohibits or hinders his work from getting done. We should just believe that the gospel isn't like other things in the world. And its way of producing its fruit in us is not through work but through rest. We could just believe the word of God. We could try it. Call me nuts. We could try it. Right? 
God is not asking for you to pay your own way. He's calling on you to rest in Christ's payment for you. Jesus has appeared before God as one of us on our behalf so that we might rest from our works and find mercy and grace to help when we are in need. Beloved, our greatest moments of need in this world are the moments when our flesh tries to get us to doubt the message of great salvation in Jesus. We don't want grace, not naturally. We don't want the gospel. We want to pay our own way. We don't want to stop working. We want to walk by sight, not by faith. But Jesus has already passed through the heavens for us. The work is already done, necessary to save us. It's already done. Believe it. Believe it. Our forgiveness and our righteousness are already standing behind the veil before the face of God for us. Forever. Forever. You and I have been invited into his rest. Jesus has purchased our admission. We need only believe in him. So this message is to the struggling believer. This message is to the believer who is worn out trying to earn God's approval. It's who Hebrews is written to because when you start to feel like that, your flesh is going to tell you that the way to correct it is to work just like it was doing for them. They were going to go back to the ultimate system of work. They were going to go back to the law and to the old priestly system and bring back in the entire ceremonies and rituals and rites and laws of the old covenant. That's how serious they wanted to be about their performance, about their work. Why? Because they were starting to doubt their faith. And when you start to doubt their faith, you know what your flesh is going to do to you? According to chapter three, it's going to tempt you. You know what? If you'd buckle down, right? If you just, if you would just get more serious about your faith, right? If you just get, get disciplined, get involved, whatever that means, right? Just follow what the people arbitrarily decide is the work of the Lord and start doing it more and you'll be all right. No, you won't. No, you won't. Why do you think everybody's so scared in church if you, if you back them into a corner? Why do you think everybody's always so doubtful of their salvation and frustrated with their walk? Because their confidence is in their works and the works are never going to be good enough for you to say, I'm good. Or you'll think they are. And again, you'll be a Pharisee who thinks you're justified by your works. Neither path leads to the cross. Only Christ leads to the cross. Only belief. Only belief. That's the sort of disobedience that is the most dangerous to us, beloved, that will stop believing Christ and start believing ourselves. So believer, rest, rest, look to Christ, believe who he is and what he has done and what he says. And for those of you in this room that do not know him, this is the gospel. Jesus Christ will forgive you of all of your sin and your rebellion and your darkness and your wickedness if you will but come to him and say, please forgive me and take me in. That's the essence of what we're talking about this morning. He will turn no one away that comes to him, whether they already know him or not. So you come. If this is the time as we sing that you want to know Jesus, you want to rest in Jesus, if you want to come and pray, you are welcome to do so this morning. I'll be standing down front. If you want to join our church and be a part of what we're doing here, if you want to be baptized, we invite you to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for Jesus Christ. God, what hope do we have but him, but your son, all of us, everyone in the room. We all need the exact same thing, no matter who we are, no matter where we are in life. We all need the exact same thing. We need Jesus Christ in the message of great salvation to save and to keep us. And so, Lord, may your spirit move in us to that end. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So that's, that's good news. Thank you all so much for being here this morning, everybody. Remember, we uh, continue through Genesis tonight, our second ser- sermon in that series. We'll meet here at 630. All right, let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Father, we praise you so much for your perfection and beauty and holiness and wisdom and grace and love and patience. Father, we praise you for the report that Ron has headed home. I pray that you would watch over them, watch over he and Cindy. Lord, be with us as we go. Keep your word in our hearts. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.